the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with uh, Wallace Henley. He is the author of Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. This is a fascinating book. It's actually less about Nebuchadnezzar and Trump as it is about God's hand in history and how he uses certain people and eras to accomplish his great purposes that certainly transcend the interests of a single nation. Fascinating book. I would uh, highly recommend it. Anyway, we're going to talk with him about that later this hour. And I will warn you, it's going to be dissatisfying because he and I could have a three-hour conversation Uh, But we won't have that much time. So uh, the book is published by Thomas Nelson. So make note of that. We'll also talk with James Carafano. He's the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and the E.W. Richardson Fellow. Uh, He has uh, written a piece titled In Portland, DHS Facing Organized Criminal Activity. And he makes the case that they are absolutely justified. We'll find out his take on all of this. And presenting with some of the objections that I'm hearing from people here in Portland who are part of those protests but uh, do not claim to be part of the riots that have accompanied those protests for weeks now. In other news, uh, U.S. Attorney General William Barr appeared before the House Judiciary Committee for the first time today. He took no prisoners as he strongly condemned the grave abuses in the bogus Russiagate scandal, while also highlighting black-on-black violence and uh, defending law enforcement officers. The Attorney General was uh, not alone in his unusually aggressive posture, as most GOP lawmakers on the panel, including ranking member Representative Jim Jordan, strenuously objected to the proceedings. Barr denied that President Trump has improperly interfered with any of his decisions before pointing to statistics showing progress on racial justice issues, according um, to his um, testimony. Interestingly enough, this was supposed to be a hearing, and several times he actually made the statement, I thought I was the one you were supposed to be hearing from, because he was not permitted to get many words in in answer to uh, very um, pointed and accusatory questions So this was another example of political theater without much uh, being resolved. Everyone held their ground without a conversation to try to clarify the attorney general's position as opposed to the accusations that were being made. Former Bernie Sanders campaign co-chair Nina Turner pulled no punches when describing those who would vote for presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden, characterizing such a vote with an extremely non-appetizing analogy. I cannot, in fact, use the words she used, but I can give you the general idea. Turner, who was a prominent surrogate for Senator Sanders during the 2020 Democratic primary, expressed her lack of excitement for the former vice president to the Atlantic. It's like saying to somebody you have a bowl of something that's not very appetizing in front of you, and all you've got to do is eat half of it instead of the whole thing. It's still unappetizing, she described to the Atlantic staffer 
with a writer, Peter Nicholas, Harvard University professor Cornell West, who also supported Sanders during the primary, had a similar stance in that article. Meanwhile, Seattle mayor council members uh, see uh, offensive messages written outside their homes resign, and then it was followed by descriptive words, again, that I cannot repeat on air and would not in just personal life. NYPD, their searches for would-be robbers who knocked out a man in a wheelchair continues, and they've released video in a drive-by shooting that left two basketball player teens dead. Well, gold is pulling back after hitting another record, and income payroll tax suspensions proposed for some essential workers still being debated in Washington. The coronavirus has prompt, um, prompted rather Rowan University to drop its tuition by 10%. Well, America is arming up to combat dangerous streets. Growing concerns over personal safety are fueling a striking surge in gun sales in the U.S., according to research and firearm experts. If you were to walk into any big box store or any small corner gun store, you would see the shelves are bare, and they are bare because of demand. Rock, uh, Mark Olivia, who is a... Uh, Representative for the National Shooting Sports Foundation says manufacturers are working around the clock to be able to keep up with that demand. From another story, Minneapolis residents have begun forming neighborhood watches and armed security groups to protect their neighborhoods in the wake of unrest sparked by the killing of George Floyd in May, according to a new report. And gun sales are up all across the nation. By the way, several times protesters have shot at cars trying to get past them. Well, Black Lives Matter is pushing an agenda on school districts and large teachers unions appear to be on board. Parents, on the other hand, are not. Mayor Lori Lightfoot said we are being inundated with guns from states that have virtually no gun control, no background checks, no ban on assault weapons. That's a quote from Newsweek. And David Harsinyi, he takes on the uh, fallacies of her statement and then includes this. Around 7% of criminals in prison bought weapons using their real names. Fewer than 1% obtained them at gun shows. As of the Heritage Foundation uh, there, Amy Swearer points out there have been around 18 million concealed carry permit holders over the past 15 years, and they have committed 801 firearm-related homicides over the, that span, or somewhere around 0.7% of all firearm-related murders. Canceled, um, or rather concealed carry holders, not only are more law-abiding than the general population as a group, they are more law-abiding than law enforcement. And they didn't break down uh, among those homicides how many were um, in self-defense. Jim Garrity points out that journalism is vanishing. This is not the pursuit of knowledge. This is the avoidance of knowledge. This is not curiosity. This is an ironclad certainty that everything that is needed to be known about any given subject is already known. This is not informing the audience about what is going on in the world. This is making sure they don't hear what's going on in the world because it might run counter to a preferred narrative. Whatever you want to uh, call what these institutions are doing now, this is not journalism. This is anti-journalism. You can read his full column at National Review, Jim Garrity. Meanwhile, Hot Air reports that the media ignores what would normally be a massive story, a sitting president spying on an opponent. And Portland protesters are shouting the N-word at black officers. Now, I've been hearing this throughout the last several weeks. I'm seeing African-American Federal Protective Service inspectors, 20-year law enforcement officers being called the N-word to their face for the first time in their careers by a scrawny, pasty white um, well, I won't say the rest of the description that's given here. The agent said in an interview with Todd um, Benisman, a senior at the a senior fellow at CIS, and this is a constant theme 
where African-Americans are being called by the N-word by Black Lives Matter participants. Senate Republicans on Monday officially unveiled details of their proposal for the latest round of coronavirus stimulus, officially igniting last-minute negotiations overshadowed by the still-turbulent economy, reports the Washington Free Beacon. The GOP plan includes roughly $1 trillion in new spending meant primarily to shore up the flagging market as unemployment persists over 10%. At the same time, it sets a far less expansive spending agenda that the House Democrats plan Uh, That was um, introduced in May and contains over three trillion dollars in spending proposals that sets up what is likely to be a chaotic week of inter-party and inter-branch negotiations. Stay tuned. The Free Beacon adds the proposals most contentious portion is likely to be its changes to federal supplementation of unemployment insurance. In August and September, the GOP plan will guarantee payment of $200 per month to those on unemployment over and above their state payments. In October, that would transition to guaranteeing wage replacement of 70% of those without a job up to $500 a month. That's a major cut to the status quo under the CARES Act passed in March, which paid out an additional $600 per month essentially guaranteeing a $15 per hour replacement wage. Democrats want to preserve that arrangement, while some Republicans worry that it's discouraging workers from returning to their workforce, contributing to a slowed economic recovery. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing to work our way through some of the day's headlines. Also want to remind you, coming up in our next two segments, we're going to talk with Wallace Henley. He's the author of Two Men from Babylon. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. And James Carafano will join us. He's written on what's happening here in Portland, and he says it's organized crime, not just protests or even riots. We'll talk with him about that perspective when he joins us in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the Democrat Party platform has honored Native American tribes that fought against the U.S. in the War of 1812, and conservative justices reportedly declined to take up a Second Amendment case after John Roberts. He signaled that he would side with the liberals in that case. Heads are going to roll. That's what Nick Sandman's legal team threatens in new action against CNN and The Washington Post for allegedly violating the confidentiality agreements. And the first presidential debate will be moved to Cleveland amid pandemic concerns. The debate, which is in just about two months, was originally scheduled to be hosted by the University of Notre Dame. Senator Tom Cotton has uh, introduced legislation to ban federal funding of schools teaching fake history, and campus activists are demanding free tuition and reparations. Tulane's Black Student Union has pressed the administration to compensate the descendants of slaves who worked on campus grounds. ESPN is issuing a correction on a viral WNBA national anthem tweet saying players left before the song was played, but the damage had already been done. An enraged woman has maced a couple who weren't wearing masks. She was rather hysterical. South Korea will have uh, solid fuel rockets and a major deal with the United States, AP reports, and more federal agents are dispatched to Portland as protests rise in another cities, in and around other cities, Oregon City and Eugene as well. 77% of Americans are concerned about crime in our cities. I'm surprised it's only 77%, but that's according to Powerline. And hope has increased that the Sunbelt hotspots have stabilized in the latest COVID-19 news. Some Major League Baseball games have been postponed after the Miami Marlins coronavirus outbreak, according to ESPN. And the loss of smell from coronavirus is not permanent, scientists are now saying. 
In other notable news, a Florida man, of course, fraudulently, fraudulently obtained $3.9 million in the PPP loans and used some of it to buy a Lamborghini. Wow. Life during COVID, ice cream is real popular. Deodorant, not so much. You can interpret that how you choose. On this day in history, 1914, World War I begins as Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. 1945, a U.S. Army bomber crashes into the 79th floor of the New York State's Empire, I should say Empire State Building, killing 14 people. 1965, President Lyndon Baines Johnson announces he's increasing the number of American troops in South Vietnam from 75,000 to 125,000 almost immediately. On the stand history, 1976, an earthquake devastates northern China, killing at least 242,000 people, according to an official estimate. 1984, the Los Angeles Summer Olympics begins. And in 2009, on this day in history, the Senate Judiciary Committee proved Judge Sonia Sotomayor to be the U.S. Supreme Court first Hispanic justice over nearly solid Republican opposition. 2017, on this day in history, British baby Charlie Gard dies a week shy of his first birthday. His parents had fought for the right to take him to bring him to the United States for an experimental treatment for a rare genetic disease that left him brain damaged. He was not permitted to, to uh, transport and he died on this day in history. Attorney General William Barr's testimony before the House Judiciary Committee is important for Americans to witness. So says Josh Holmes. Speaking earlier today, Holmes, the former chief of staff to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, said that he believes the public will be grateful for the chance to hear directly from Barr and not from the media filter that parses out the facts that he is referring to. Unfortunately, you didn't really get to hear much from uh, Secretary Barr. He was interrupted and prevented from answering rather extensive and accusatory questions. Barr began the hearing by defending the highly criticized federal response to nationwide protests and rioting following the death of George Floyd. He told committee members that the threat to black lives posed by crime on the streets is massively greater than any threat posed by police misconduct and that the leading cause of death for young black males is homicide. According to statistics compiled by the Washington Post, the number of unarmed black men killed by police so far this year is eight. The number of unarmed white men killed by police over the same period is 11, Barr said. Holmes described Barr's statistics as incredibly depressing and added that you wouldn't be able to read much or hear much about it if it weren't, wasn't for hearings like this. Holmes went on to say that he believed the attorney general had comported himself very well. It's an incredibly mismatch between congressional Democrats who are basically forced to just sort to sort of try to shout over him. They're asking questions, but not really. They're more like statements, he pointed out. And at any time he tries to interject, they basically reclaim their time and don't allow him to speak. I can only imagine that's because what he's about to say would refute most of what their questions were. Uh, and so um, he went on to say, I think he's done uh, well this morning. Well, you can judge for yourselves. But again, not much new information uh, was exchanged as it wasn't a conversation uh, in that hearing. Well, the United States has been grappling with a response to COVID-19 pandemic for more than six months. Oh, my. But now a series of published results from vaccine developers raises the hope that a definitive end to the pandemic might be in sight, although far sight. Uh, the race for COVID-19 vaccine began at the end of January, and the administration's announcement of Operation Warp Speed greatly accelerated that process by providing unprecedented funding to help execute the necessary research and take out the financial risk of developing and manufacturing the potentially successive vaccine candidates. 
Well, the initiative has already borne fruit. Two pharmaceutical companies, AstraZeneca and Moderna, this month began the final phase of clinical trials before approval and distribution. There are three phases of clinical trials before a new drug can be sold and distributed, which are meant to ensure that the drug is safe, that it works, and that it works better than the existing course of treatment. Typically, drug development takes several years before drug approval, and the fact that there are two phase three trials beginning seven months after the first COVID-19 case was confirmed in the U.S. reflects the amount of resources being devoted to vaccine development and the breathtaking speed at which it's happening. By comparison, the vaccine with the shortest time to approval up to now has been the mumps vaccine, which took four years to develop. Much of the speed comes from the ability to recruit participants, to gather enough data, and to ensure the safety of the vaccines. Now, I noted today, in fact, I received uh, emails today about the use of hydroxychloroquine as a cure to COVID-19. Uh, that is, at this point, a rumor. It certainly has been helpful in some cases, but it's not a vaccine. Um, and I, I don't know that I've seen any peer-reviewed studies confirming that it is a cure, but that certainly is floating around out there from sources that I'm not in entirely sure are reliable, but we'll continue to follow that story as it develops to uh, let you know if, in fact, that's um, a possibility. Well, the Miami Marlins uh, will uh, press pause on their season to focus on the health and safety of their players as a coronavirus outbreak has struck the team, the league announced. Uh, Sports Grid's Craig Mish first reported that the Marlins games were uh, going to temporarily be on hold. Major League Baseball later released a statement on that issue. So they are just that on hold. Questions remain over who is organizing the crowds that have filled Portland streets for more than 60 consecutive nights since the May 25th death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Demonstrators have thrown fireworks and Molotov cocktails over a fence where federal officers are uh, embedded to protect the Hatfield Courthouse. On Monday night, an incendiary device thrown by someone in the crowd of hundreds exploded outside the courthouse, causing a report to be uh, heard and felt more than um, a block away, according to the Portland Police Bureau. Federal officers respond by issuing warnings over megaphones, directing crowds to disperse before firing riot ammunition, pepper balls, and CS gas. Mostly Democratic officials have defended the actions of peaceful protesters in the uh, city of Portland. Police on Sunday night uncovered a, a bag full of rifle ammunition and material used to make Molotov cocktails while responding to a Lonsdale Park. One person was arrested for allegedly attacking a federal officer with a hammer earlier in the month. Well, a lawsuit filed in Washington, D.C. on Monday on behalf of uh, anti-racist organization Don't Shoot Portland and Wall of Moms, a group of mothers who have sought to insert themselves between protesters and police despite being uh, subject to the response from federal law enforcement. Uh, And that suit is pending. Their message seems clear. On the other side, we're going to talk more about that when uh, we are joined by James Carafano at five o'clock. He has written a piece saying that in Portland, DHS is facing uh, facing rather organized criminal activity. Up next, we'll talk with Wallace Henley. Two men from Babylon is the title of the book. Nebuchadnezzar, Trump and the Lord of History. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Every once in a while, I'll read a book or at least uh, try to get through a book that I think is written for our time. And as we are just, what, uh, 100 days or less away from our next election, this uh, book that we're going to be talking about, I think, is a must read for those of us who want to per- perhaps gain some perspective on our times. The book is titled Two Men from Babylon. It's written by my guest, Wallace Henley. And the question is, did God make or permit 
Donald Trump to become president. Well, in this release, pastor and former Nixon White House aide Wallace Henley, he explores the very possibility that that could be true. The book is titled Two Men from Babylon, and he brings into perspective how God uses unlikely leaders to bring about his plans and his purposes. He tears the camouflage off of our times, and he looks intently at what's going on in our crazy era on the eve of a year of destiny. Well, the heart of the book is found in two scripture passages, one in the Old Testament, the other in the New. And he makes the point that God has grand purposes for our time and history. And the question uh, that is also addressed is, what does um, what roles do King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as uh, he was a ruler of Babylon, and Donald J. Trump, who is the 45th president of the United States, play in God's kingdom and his plans? I just love the book and want to encourage you to, uh, to consider reading it. My guest, uh, Wallace Henley, was born two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. After serving as a White House aide during the Nixon administration, he went on to become an award-winning journalist for the Birmingham News in Alabama. He's the author of more than 20 books, including God and Churchill, with uh, Jonathan Sandys, Winston Churchill's great-grandson. He has led uh, leadership conferences around the globe and joins us today to talk about his latest book, Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a great joy. Thank you for having me. This really is a fascinating book because it's not about who you should pull the lever for on Election Day. It's not about whether or not Donald Trump should be the president or if he is a modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. It really is much more about the Lord of History to help us gain understanding of our times as we are entering into another strategic season that all of us will have the opportunity to play a role in. What was your motivation in um, putting these two individuals in a single book uh, and helping us understand how God moves in history. Well, in, in, when I was in my late 20s, 29 years old to be exact, I became a member of the White House staff and very impressionable and very interested in what I was seeing. I became uh, uh, sort of uh, occupied with the ideas about how nations work and how the leaders of nations fit into a grander pattern of history. And at that time, I was going through something of a theological crisis. I had uh, become very liberal in my theology, wasn't sure what I believed about the Bible. Uh, I was invited to a prayer group that met in the White House every Thursday morning, a staff prayer group. And by the grace of God, through that prayer group, I was led back to the Lord and back to a very solid view of Scripture. And I began to see that there is a pattern in history. Through the years, I, I, I continued to pursue this idea. And Finally, I landed on this tremendous passage called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about the fact that all of history is about the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the coming of his kingdom. And all the leaders of nations are placed in in power either by his permissive will or his intentional will. And I began to look at Trump and uh, all the rest in that perspective. You make a comparison uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. You're not suggesting Donald Trump is a modern Nebuchadnezzar, but you make comparison between uh, the role that each has played in their time. Can you give us a kind of a brief overview? Because I think this is so significant and helps us to perhaps look at events in our day with a much broader perspective on what God is doing historically, as well as looking uh, toward the future. Well, as I meditated more and studied more, about the nature of nations, I begin to see this this Babylon meme, if you will, 
that was that was all over the scripture uh, from the Tower of Babel, uh, the beginning, all the way out to the book of Revelation, where it's where it's the Babylonian uh, world system that is defying God. In fact, uh, I define it based on the scripture, Babylon, as the world system organized without and in defiance of God. And I begin to see that Nebuchadnezzar, in his rule in the time of Daniel, was sort of an archetypal, archetypical uh, type of ruler of that kind of world. Uh, I begin to see that other secular leaders across time have followed that same pattern, and that God is raising them up, or by his permissive will, God is allowing them to come into power uh, to fulfill the purposes of the kingdom. So Jesus one day tells his disciples, they're walking by the temple, and the disciples look and see all the stones of the temple uh, beside them. They're massive. And, and, And they say to him, wow, look at the size of these stones. And Jesus says, guys, the day is coming when not one of these stones will be left upon another. And of course, he was speaking very directly about what would come about 40 years in the future in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed that temple. But he was talking in a larger sense, as we see in Matthew 24, of of the world system and the great stones that hold up the world system being scattered about in chaos and disarray. And the disciples are stunned by this. And Jesus says, in the midst of all this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all of the world as a witness to all of the ethnes, that's the Greek word, all of the people groups. And then the end, not the termination, but the telos. Telos means purpose. The purpose of everything will come. So all the leaders across history, because nations are so important in the plan of God, all the leaders are across history are ruling either by God's direct lifting them up into power or God permitting them to come into power. That was true of Nebuchadnezzar. It's true of Trump. You um, contrast the kind of leader Nebuchadnezzar was, his worldview, and that of uh, Donald Trump. Again, you're not saying he's the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar, but the the type of leader that each of them was in their time. And what, what can we learn from Nebuchadnezzar that will help us better understand our current president, Donald Trump? Well, the great hope that I would have regarding Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar uh, went through a period of, of insanity, if you will, uh, when he was driven out into the wilderness, and he spent years in the wilderness eating what the animals ate. And in that experience, he came to a very dramatic encounter with Daniel's God. Uh, Daniel was, along with other young friends, were, were young uh, men from Judah who had been brought there in exile, and, and they were tempted at the king's table, but they refused to break the laws that they knew from Israel, the laws of God. And they witnessed, but Nebuchadnezzar himself resisted any move of God until he was driven out into the wilderness. Donald Trump is is something of a comparison to Nebuchadnezzar, Many of, in, especially in style. Many compare him to Cyrus in terms of policy, but in terms of style, he's very much like Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe he's there by the permissive will of God. We have, we have become a very coarse nation. And he, his coarseness is kind of a reflection of what the nation itself has become. Uh, policy-wise, uh, certainly I'm pro-life. And policy-wise, uh, I, I'm, I thank God for many of the things he's doing. But at the same time, I have to note that, that there's some hope that God could use a Nebuchadnezzar in the past 
And therefore, there should be hope now that God can use this man who in, in style and character, not a, not a, as, you, as you point out, not a reincarnation, but in style and character, someone something like Nebuchadnezzar was in his time. So I want to hear that great declaration, and I believe it will come. Nebuchadnezzar's declaration was, the God of Daniel is God. And I'm looking forward to a, a very clear announcement from, from President Trump. I mean, he plays around the edges of it, but I'm looking forward to a very clear announcement that the God of the Bible, he is the God who is the ruler of all. It is his kingdom that we serve. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Wallace Henley. His book, Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. The bulk of the book is about the Lord of History and how we might better understand his hand at work uh, in our time as we look back and as we anticipate the future. We'll take a quick break, but we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Wallace Henley. He's the author of Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. It is a fascinating book that helps us to apply an eternal and biblical perspective on events that have occurred and may occur in the days ahead, uh, particularly in this country. One of the things you write about is the what you call the grand enigma, part of what has made uh, Donald Trump such a... Um, uh, a mystery is how on earth someone of his uh, nature managed to succeed where everyone uh, who was observing would have suggested that would have been impossible. You write the maddening to some mystery remain. What power made Donald Trump the president of the United States of America? That's exactly right. That power can only be understood in the in the context of the great overarching purpose of history that we talked about in the first segment. All of history is about the coming of Christ's kingdom and the preparation of nations uh, for the coming of that kingdom. And by the way, that kingdom um, is the kingdom of, the Bible says, Romans 14, 17, of righteousness, which also means justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think, I think the unrest that we're seeing in our country now mm. is the fact that, that people have, have lost vision for that kind of beautiful kingdom that is in the future and, and human beings are trying to establish the kingdom for themselves and all of us. And I found this when I was on the White House staff, how people could almost worship politics and place all of their hope and political powers to bring about the kingdom. And so we have all these conflicting forces who are driven with this hunger of the human being. We are wired for God's kingdom. We are wired for it. And if we reject him and if we reject the kingdom, then we try to bring it into being ourselves through our conflict or, or however. My, my hope would be that someone like Donald Trump, who is known as such a man of the world, if you will, and this yes. would be true of Nebuchadnezzar, that he would come to that place that he would, that he would just so clearly, and, and he's so close to making these kinds of statements, embrace the idea of God's kingdom. So I have, I have hope in the midst of all of our despair that God is working in the midst of this to prepare us for the future. Absolutely. You write of some of the uh, individuals who are well-known within the evangelical community. How could she, they, believe God chose Trump as president? Why would such noted leaders put their reputation on the line for a man like Trump? Could it be that God really did select or at least permit Donald Trump to occupy the Oval Office in this critical season of the United States? If God, who is perfect in his holy character, chose Trump, 
whose character is regarded by many as flawed, to put it generously. Why would the Lord of history grant him authority? To answer that question, you turn to the Bible. And there are two scripture passages at the heart of your book. Can you tell us what those passages are and where we begin in this exploration of the Lord of history? Yes, in Daniel chapter 2, God tells Daniel explicitly, right in the middle of all this, this mess with Nebuchadnezzar, that it is God who changes the times and the seasons, who raises up and puts down the kings or the leaders, the queens, whoever it may, may be, Queen Esther, certainly, whoever it may be, it is God who does this. There are, there are patterns in history. Uh, Mark Twain is, is uh, credited with saying that time may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so all across history, we can establish, we can see these patterns. And, and time is not merely linear. Uh, time right. is linear cyclical. That is, there are chirotic events that are spinning across time. And these events are all in the context of God's plan on that linear plane of time. It's like a train moving down a track, and it picks up speed. So that's the first passage. God is raising up leaders, and we see these same types all across history either by God's intentional will or his permissive will. And then the second passage is in Matthew chapter 24, uh, and that's where Jesus talks about the, the, the purpose of history and the fact that, that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations. And so we see in that, we, we hook these two concepts up, and we understand that nations within historical time, chronos time, as the Greeks might put it, Nations are crucibles for the realization, for the pouring out of the revelation of God's will and, and the leaders of those nations, either positively or negatively, uh, help prepare the way for that. Sometimes those leaders are, are, are instruments of God's judgments on a nation, and sometimes those leaders bring direct blessing, as Esther did when she rose to power. That's how it works, I think. You write about the a deep history, and you write the important thinkers since at least the golden age of Greece have seen patterns in events, personalities, and nations that have made them think there is much more going on in time than we realize. Talk a bit about deep history and how God is at work in ways and at times when perhaps we don't take notice if we're focused on the, the, the moment and the features of our particular experience alone. Well, we can we can look uh, we can see that most clearly in the nation Israel, which is somewhat prototypical of God's interactions with nations, and we see a pattern in Israel. It begins with a ratification, what I call a ratification, when the important uh, uh, influencers in the culture all endorse the idea. The consensus is God is God, God is on His throne, and He is the ruler of our nation. And this is a time of tremendous blessing when this consensus is in place. But then comes a time of the relapse of memory. And I, I'm alliterating this so I can remember it. Relapse of memory. They forget God. And we see this in the book of Judges when the Bible says that the generation that knew Joshua dies away and they, and they, didn't, they no longer knew Joshua's God. And when that, that relapse of memory comes on the nation, men forget God. People forget God, as an old peasant told Solzhenitsyn about Russia, when Solzhenitsyn said, what's gone wrong with us? And the old man said, men have forgotten God. People have forgotten God. The next stage is the stage of, of, uh, of rebellion, when, when the consensus around God evaporates, 
And when forgetfulness of God and his work in our midst is, is, is present, we forget that, then comes rebellion. And following rebellion comes the consequence of rebellion, which is the refiner's fire. And the nation experiences great turmoil. We're, America right now is in a refiner's fire uh, period. And we need to open our eyes to that. The good news is that, that some, the next stage is remembrance. People in the culture begin to ask the question, wait a minute, what, what have we lost? What did we leave behind? What did we forget? And the prophetic voice rises up in the midst of that time of remembrance, calling people back to, to God and the roots in God. The prophets are persecuted, but nevertheless, they continue speaking. And following that age of, of remembrance, when people begin to remember God again, next comes a stage of repentance, when, when significant uh, numbers of, of people within the nation begin to turn back to God. And God is always looking for a remnant. I have a whole chapter in the book about the remnant. And God is always looking for the remnant. And it is the remnant that repents and begins to move back to God. And that unleashes a blessing for the whole nation in the form of the next stage, which is revival. And I'm also seeing signs of that, uh, all three of those things in, in what we're moving through right now. And then following the revival, comes another era of ratification when the consensus around God is reestablished. And the Bible says, he has, has a wonderful way of putting it, the Holy Spirit does in the Bible, um, the nation had rest for 40 years. The nation had rest for a generation. And then the cycle begins all over again. We're talking about the book, Two Men from Babylon. In it, he writes, to achieve his purposes, the Lord of history will use unlikely, complex, and powerful leaders like Nebuchadnezzar and Donald Trump the two men from Babylon. We're going to take a quick break. And if you can stay with us for one more segment, I'd like to talk about the Lord of history in which you address the question, does God have a plan for history and the historic roles of leaders, whether a Nebuchadnezzar or Donald Trump? You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I know that I had anticipated having my guest, James J. Carafano, join us at the top of the hour. We're going to hear that conversation uh, in our next segment, but I wanted to continue my conversation with uh, Wallace Henley. His book is Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. It's one of the best I've read during this season, and I would highly recommend it for you as well to help make sense of events. Uh, of these last few years and as we anticipate events uh, moving forward. In your chapter titled The Lord of History, you ask the question, does God have a plan for history and the historic roles of leaders, whether a Nebuchadnezzar or a Donald Trump? You write that President Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II thought so. Now, this is one of the major uh, questions that we have in our age. For people who supported Donald uh, Trump's political aspirations and those who oppose them vehemently, there's a, a, a challenge within the Christian community. How could you support Donald Trump or how could you not support him given his position on certain issues? There, there are other questions to be uh, considered in the midst of all of this, and that really is what your book, Two Men from Babylon, is all about. Does God have a purpose, even in uh, selecting or allowing someone to, uh, to serve with authority who doesn't reflect his character? In his conduct, yes, God, God has a massive plan for history, and I, I would have written the same book had Hillary Clinton been elected president in 2016. That God had either permitted or directly raised her up as our president for some purpose, but but the greater issue is what is that purpose? What is it all about? I love to illustrate the will of God like this. Imagine the Nile River, 
one of the most uh, spectacular rivers I've ever seen. It rises down in Central Africa, and it moves steadily up, always flowing toward the Mediterranean Sea. That The course of that river is not going to be turned back. Everything in that river is ultimately going to spill into the Mediterranean if it doesn't get out of the river first. It's going to the Mediterranean. That is set. That is done. Uh, there's no negotiation there. The same thing tr- is true with the intentional will of God. The whole of this world and history is moving toward a grand encounter with God at the end of chronos or finite time. There's no turning that back. Nations, leaders, everybody. But God is love. And if God is love, then God also permits us freedom. I would have loved to have locked up my kids in a closet when they turned about 14 to save them from disaster. <laughs> but I loved them. I was, I was raising them to be free. And so God has made us free. Here's what that means. We are in the river, and we're not going to get out of the river. We're headed toward the Mediterranean judgment or the coming of God's kingdom. We're headed toward that. But in the river, there are whirlpools. There are tributaries. There's all kinds of ways that people can go against that flow on very small and temporary uh, junkets. But eventually, everything is coming back to that, to that flow. And so this is true with history. There's no way to turn from the encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of time, end of chronos time. That's happening. But down here in the river right now, we can make choices against God's will. And we can, we can row against that current, or we can take a tributary. And, and, and we see that happening all the time in the choices that people make and the choices that nations make. God intends for every nation, and again, this is Matthew 24, God intends for every nation to be a crucible of his kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy and justice, uh, joy in the Holy Spirit. That's God's intentional will. We get in our little boats and we row against it. And sometimes we elect the wrong people. And God permits us to do that because of God's commitment to our freedom, which stems out of his love. But eventually, God is always going to return it to that same course, that same course, that same course. And this is where both the bad news and the good news apply. (laughs) Bad news that we go against the current. Good news is, or it may be bad news if we reject God, that ultimately everything is going to wind wind up at his throne. Which uh, I think helps us to respond to however the next election um, turns out, keeping that broader picture in mind. You write about um, where the age of Trump might fit into history. How might we interpret uh, the age of Trump, as, as you put it, in this moment in history? I think many historians will look back and say it, there, was a, there was a build up to chaos, and that build up to chaos and, and coarseness and, and turning away from God, certainly uh, what we've seen uh, is, 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 a, is a vast disaster in many ways. I look at numbers, uh, I, I, and I think of numbers as, as, as a deciding factor for electing the president. And one of the numbers that I look at is 60 million. 60 million is the number of babies who've died in abortion chambers in the United mm. States since Roe v. Wade. And so I say, look, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not voting for Biden or Trump. I'm voting for life. 
I'm voting for, oh, by the way, I'm also in, in, uh, voting for employment, for, for the ability of people to work and for minorities to work. I'm, I'm voting for that. And I look at Trump's numbers. I look at the fact that, that uh, 5 million new jobs were added uh, before all this coronavirus stuff began to come down on us and, and 4.5 million jobs for, for, for minorities. I'm looking at things like that and issues like that. So the president who, who does the most for life and the president who does most for, for encouraging work and improves the ability of people to live in prosperity and happiness, that's, that's the way I want to vote. And so those are the trends that, that I look for as, as a Christian voter. Mm. You uh, write about the strategic role of the church uh, related to politics. As we are approaching another election year, it threatens to divide the church. Um, but how should we um, view the strategic role that the church is to play during this season? The health of a nation is in direct proportion to the health of the church within a nation. The health of a nation is in direct proportion to the health of the church in the nation. And by church, I mean whatever religious or spiritual or ultimacy entity is present in that culture. So if you have a toxic religion, then you will have a toxic nation. If you have a, a healthy, strong, vibrant faith that is aligned with biblical truth, then you're going to have a nation of blessing. And so let's just think for a moment about the formation of this nation. When this nation was formed, it was formed in the context of a biblical worldview. And that's pretty inarguable. People will attempt to do that, but they, but they can't. I would point people, for example, to Christianity and the Constitution by John Eidsmo and many other books. Dr. Mark uh, Taylor has written a very important recent book on this topic. And one of the things that was present in that, in that founding worldview was the sense of God's transcendence and the idea coming rising from the Old Testament and those pr- uh, colonial era preachers preached a lot from the Old Testament. And their sermons went on an hour, sometimes two hours. So the founders were under this, this continual preaching of judgment and accountability and the transcendent holiness of God. So guess what comes into the Constitution? Our rights are given to us by our creator, not by the state. And the state is accountable, accountable to God through the people. All of these ideas come in. And then comes a very important seed in the preamble. All men all human beings are created, um, are, are, are equal. Uh, there's, there's equal dignity, equal rights, and all of these receive the, the, the gifts that have come from the Creator. Now, the seed that was planted in that was the seed that would destroy slavery, and it did uh, destroy slavery, ultimately. And so all of these elements were present in our nation. America also was something of a covenant nation. Any, any nation... This is not just America, but any nation that appeals to God for its foundations is, in a sense, a a covenant nation. Therefore, the church in the culture is that remnant, that that group, hopefully not not a small remnant, but but a growing remnant of people who embrace those values, those principles under the lordship of Christ that make the nation a great nation and restores us to those values and principles. So the church has got to be in the act. It's got to be right in the middle of it. I left the White House as a young man uh, after three years there. 
I left the White House with a conviction after observing government at, at the highest levels that the most important entity, the most important, most potent um, entity in this world is the church in yeah. any nation. That's right. Well, the book is Two Men from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Trump, and the Lord of History. Wallace Henley is the author. It's published by Thomas Nelson, and I would recommend this book between now and Election Day as we're pondering the uh, the state of our nation and the course that we might uh, see in the future. This is just a, a great book. Thank you so much for writing it and for taking the time to talk with us here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Georgia. It's my joy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from James Carafano, President, uh, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullen Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. We're going to talk about what's happening here in Portland. He's written a piece saying that the uh, Department of Homeland Security is facing organized criminal activity. We'll give him an opportunity to make that case when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, as you know, what happens in downtown Portland has dominated headlines for quite some time. On social media, you might hear from people who say, you don't know what's really happening in Portland. I've been there in the protests, and this is a peaceful demonstration. I don't know how you explain the graffiti and the damage that's been done, who's doing it, or the, the unwillingness to acknowledge that there's any violence of any kind, except when it's perpetrated, they say, by federal agents. Well, James Carafano recently wrote a piece that said, in Portland, Seattle, Homeland Security is facing organized criminal activity, something that leaders here are simply not willing to even consider. First of all, that there's rioting or there's illegal activity, but only that the response to that activity is uh, overbearing. Well, James Carafano, I appreciate your joining us today, and I appreciate what you've written on the subject. You're making the point that what we're experiencing here and we are experiencing it here um, on a daily basis, is in fact criminal activity. What are your thoughts on what's happening in Portland, Seattle, and elsewhere? Well, so again, I'm not in Portland. So uh, my observations are based on one on-the-ground reporting that I've seen and corroborated with uh, some of the reporting that the government puts out. I mean, I don't trust government reporting as the be-all and end-all, but when I look at the, the media reporting from the scene and what the government says, I mean, I think there are some things that you can put together. The first one, it's clear. Well, look, let's be honest. If you're attacking federal property, attacking federal officers, these, these, this is violence and this is rioting and they are, these are crimes. So they're not demonstrations. They're, they're, they're criminal activity. Um, what, what caught my attention is when people are bringing things to the scene of the crime, like leaf blowers to disperse gas, metal spikes to put in tires, frozen water bottles to throw at people, commercial fireworks to shoot at them, lasers to blind them, um, Molotov cocktails, other things are important. These are conscious acts. Somebody has to think to do that. And they're offensive tools. They're not the kinds of things we see from demonstrators who are worried about peacefully demonstrating or, or being a, a dispersed crowd. They're things that, are, that people would bring only if they have an intention to do harm and do offensive activities. So that raises the question is, we know it's a crime. We know that there's a certain premeditation to the crime because people are bringing these accoutrements with them to do criminal acts. That suggests that you have to ask the question is, is there organization behind this? And why you ask that question is because if people are conspiring together to conduct a criminal activity, that is organized, organized crime. And the criminal conspiracy itself is a crime. And if it's a criminal conspiracy that's crossing federal lines, it yet 
brings another reason for the federal government to get involved. And when we say cross federal lines, that could be everything from people coming from out of the state to participate in riots and violent acts in Portland, people sending money, even people communicating guidance and instructions which facilitate the criminal activity. I organized criminal activity that's designed to intimidate government officials, local, state, and federal, to injure law enforcement officers and to destroy public property. I think that's a very, very serious matter. And just dismissing this as protest and dismissing the federal intervention as, well, they, you know, they just got what they asked for. They've created the situation. I mean, these, I think, are, are untenable excuses. One of the things, uh, there's a pattern that's developed here. There are peaceful demonstrations and protests up until a certain moment on the clock at which things seem to change rather dramatically. And it's a pattern that's predictable that we see. The uh, feds are provoked with threats to the, the fencing and the facilities and so on. They are forced essentially to come out to protect the facilities. And then they are blamed for uh, being uh, provocateurs of those who have come prepared to uh, deface property and to destroy. So it's a rather interesting thing. And even among the peaceful protesters, and there are plenty of them here in the Portland area, are unwilling to call out the violent arm, which, as I appreciate you put it, criminals have hijacked legitimate demonstrations, transforming them into lawless, violent mobs that deny citizens equal protection under the law. There's an unwillingness, even on the part of those who are there, uh, well-intentioned and their peaceful protesters, to call out those who hijack their attention. There's an unwillingness on the part of the mayor and other city officials to call out those, and the numbers are much smaller than the larger gatherings, who are perpetrating this kind of activity. I, I don't get it, and I think many residents in Portland are very, very frustrated by it. Well, this actually is additional evidence that suggests this is organized criminal activity, because what we see is it is changing and evolving and a, a, adapting. So, for example, you point out that the criminal activity occurs after the protests, right? That's an intentional, appears to be an intentional act to, to give cover for the violence by saying, well, it's connected to the protest. You know, for a while, we saw you know, mass protests. I think nobody, pro nobody had a problem with that. That's what Americans do. Right. But then we saw, for example, people going after statues all over the country. And what happened was the federal government came in with a task force, they, and they started to prosecute those people. And that activity very much quieted down and went away. We still have people taking on statues, but it's government officials taking on statues. It's not mobs anymore. So then, then the tactic shifted to, instead of tearing down statues of Christopher Columbus or defacing them, it shifted to attacking federal buildings. The other thing that is interesting is, where have they gone? They've gone to cities where there's a permissive environment, where the state and local officials have, have not used state and local law enforcement in a cooperative manner to bring peace to the streets. So they're, they're consciously going to places where there's weakness. We don't see this in cities all over the country. We see these in cities where, for whatever reason, local officials are not preventing them. And then we see them evolve tactics over, over time. So they go out one night and then they come back another night with a different set of weapons, a different set of excuses, a different set of people wearing a different set of jerseys. One night we show up flags, we're all patriots. One night we show up, we're all veterans. One night we show up, we're all moms. This, again, suggests organization and, and organized criminal conspiracies are an incredibly serious crime and they cannot just be dismissed, dismissed as legitimate protests. And they 
cannot be defended in any way, shape, or form that this is about addressing racial injustice or, or any other ill. This is about intimidation and the use of violence for intimidation to achieve political ends. This is organized criminal activity, which ought to be beyond the pale for any American politician who should be condemning this. I mean, you could, you could like kneeling and anything to your, you know, to your heart's content, but no American government official or member of any legislature at any level ought to stay up and say, organized criminal activity is okay. Yeah, as long as we agree with your ideology that, that motivates it. I'm hearing increasingly within the black community here, and it's relatively small in Oregon, a f- growing frustration that this, uh, this movement has been hijacked. The legitimate demonstrations that began have been hijacked for other purposes. And uh, it, that growing frustration, I think, demonstrates and, and the way blacks who are uh, standing in opposition, some federal agents, some not, police officers and so on, um, hearing the N-word and, and people in their face uh, demonstrate that this really is much less about Black Lives Matter, if it is at all, than it is other things. Um, one of the things you point out in your uh, your column is that uh, Homeland Security and the several agencies within that department have law enforcement authority that possessed uh, that they possessed long before there was ever a, a, a DHS. That the what authority they're using now was not created by the. Uh, a Trump administration. This is authority they have had and they've exercised in the past. So there are about 40 federal law enforcement agencies. Uh, you know, EPA has a police force. The FBI has its own police force. The Secret Service has its own police force. So there's about 40 federal agencies that have law enforcement authorities of one kind or another. The Coast Guard, for example, is actually a uniform military service and is an official law enforcement agent. You see, it has both those. And they're called, you know, titled or authorities under U.S. Code. So they're they're passed in law by the Congress. Congress basically declares that this agency is a law enforcement agency and establishes its jurisdiction. And then that's solidified in code. Now, if you look at the Department of Homeland Security, every organization that's in the Department of Homeland Security exists before 9-11. All the bill did was take what, what's now Customs and Border Patrol and, um, and, and ICE. All those authorities, all those legal guys were there. It just put them into one agency. So it didn't create any new authority. And indeed, the idea of creating them all under DHS is because we wanted them all to work together. As a matter of fact, this is something, again, the federal government has been doing forever. If you go back to the 30s, you know, in fighting Al Capone in Chicago, the federal government takes the law enforcement authorities of different organizations, and not just federal, often state and local government, and it brings them together in a task force to more effectively combat crime. So, for example, we have joint terrorism task force all over the country. They have federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies in there, and they work together using their different legal authorities to combat terrorism. Um, so this isn't, this isn't new, and, it, and, and it's, it's actually why we created the department, so we could leverage our law enforcement resources in support of uh, uh, the equal, equal protection under the law for all Americans. And federal law enforcement agency means exactly that. A federal agent has national jurisdiction. He is enforcing federal law all over the country. Just the same reason you could send an FBI agent into the South in the 1960s to fight the Klan and firearm churches and burning crosses is because those people were violating federal laws and the FBI had the, the authority and jurisdiction to go into those city and states, even if the local law enforcement was not cooperating with them, to enforce the law. That's exactly the same principle that is being exercised here. And the notion that somehow the intervention of federal law enforcement created the violence we know it's simply not true. 
But you guys have had rioting for many, many weeks before, before. DHS showed up. Yeah. Let me and, just ask you because very, very yeah, no, it's what's very, very clear is the violence is targeting going after the federal agents so that they can claim it's the federal agents' fault. So in addition to everything else in this organized criminal conspiracy, in addition to the logistics and the money and the training and everything else, is they're running their own propaganda machine to attack the US government. Yeah, yeah. Let me just ask you one more question because we're just about out of time. We're actually out. But I want to know your response to charges that they're over responding, that the munitions, if you will, and that's probably not the right word, that they're using in response to the rioters is uh, is uh, more than is necessary. What do you say to critics about how they're responding with uh, tear gas and well, other non-lethal um, munitions? Well, first of all, nothing that they're using is lethal. It's all non-lethal. It's not designed to permanently injure, incapacitate, or hurt anybody. It's designed to have people go away so they're not committing violence. In contrast to what the rioters are doing, shining a laser in somebody's eye can, can damage and permanently destroy their vision. That, that is physical destruction of a human being. Um, throwing an ice, an ice bottle, a frozen bottle of water at somebody can cause a concussion. That can cause permanent injury. Uh, you know, firing commercial fireworks at somebody, if it hits them, it could cause severe burns. So what the rioters are doing is they're inflicting physical harm on, on, on federal law enforcement officials. They're actually intentionally harming people. And what the law enforcement officials are doing is they're protecting themselves from physical harm, and they're trying to disperse the crowd so people aren't hurt. So the claims that somehow it's the government that's using excessive violence, are, are, I mean, they, they don't even pass the common sense test. So. Well, I so appreciate your time in talking with us, James Carafano. We'll certainly pr- uh, continue to follow what's happening here uh, and appreciate your, uh, your insight. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. James Carafano on uh, what's happening here in Portland and the calling out the criminal activity that we are witnessing here up close. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Went a little long, but I think it was worth it. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We just learned today that black leaders from Portland have been uh, have the commitment from Governor Kate Brown and regional and local officials to pass a slate of racial justice bills in next year's uh, legislative session and reinvigorate programs that address racism in housing, health care and other areas. Now, it's important to me what those policy initiatives actually are, not just what they're called. But as early as this year, the Oregon legislature could begin. No, could begin passing bills to demilitarize the police, outlawing tear gas and sound cannons, as well as the use of flashbangs and pepper spray against individuals. Urban League Portland President uh, Harmon Johnson said legislative leaders have said a special session planned for the uh, latter part of the summer would focus solely on balancing the budget. But it could now include proposals to eliminate legalized slavery from the state's constitution and to strengthen the state's fair housing laws among other bills. Well, the announcement, which was made um, earlier from Reimagine Oregon, which is an umbrella name for a collective of black community organizations and community leaders who banded together in the first weeks of the nationwide protests after the killing of George Floyd, came with timelines for when officials said the work would be completed and, in some cases, how many dollars they would pledge to do it. Governor Kate Brown, the chairs of the Multnomah and Washington County Commissions and members of the Metro Regional Commission and the Clackamas County Commission all spoke at length about their determination to get policies and programs changed and the importance of acting urgently to promote black 
Oregonians humanity. And it is unprecedented in its commitment from elected officials to make good on years of saying that racial equality is important without doing much about it. And to re- the reimagined Oregon leader said it served as a reminder that Portland's protest formed in the name of denouncing anti-black racism in policing and um, more broadly in all institutions. So apparently uh, the thing that, that uh, they are hoping for will be codified in the form of legislation. Well, the presence of federal troops in Portland, which we discussed earlier, and there are lots of different opinions as to what's actually happening. Is it criminal activity? Are there rioters? Are there peaceful protests? The answer to the question is yes, there are all of those things. Uh, Anyway, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is the pretext for it all, much of which is just that, has been a distraction from the work Black Oregonians hope protests would yield, according to several uh, reimagine Oregon speakers. So um, black leaders are speaking out against some of what's uh, done under the pretext of Black Lives Matter. Pardon me if I refuse to discuss graffiti on the side of buildings, if I refuse to engage in conversations about plate glass windows. Harmon Johnson said, I hope community members will focus uh, that this issue is about lives. Will other leaders of the collective include um, Callie Thorne Ladd, who leaves Black Children Focus Charter School, Kairos PDX. Katrina Holland, the executive director of Homeless Services Nonprofit, join. Marcus Monday, executive director of the Portland-based Coalition of Communities of Color and community organizer and protest leader, Ilana Wilson. Their proposals are as extensive, touching on home ownership, education, and mental health, as well as policing. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, we mean complete and whole persons, Harmon Johnson said. Again, we don't know what these uh, initiatives actually are calling for. We just know it's under the heading, the broad general heading of Black Lives Matter. We'll have to see what the initiatives actually say to either embrace, support, or reject. Uh, much of that work will take place and uh, will uh, take place in 2021 and beyond, and it includes commitments from Metro and three great Portland counties in the city of Portland. Most of the policies have been pitched before in the Urban League's 2015 State of Black Oregon by the Portland African American Leadership Forum or by other Black-led groups, but they went nowhere. Now, with momentum from state and local leaders who've been pushed by more than uh, 30, 60 days of protest to take action to dismantle racist systems and invest in Black communities, Black leaders created Reimagine Oregon to make sure officials made good on their statements. Now, my question is, if what's going on in downtown Portland is about uh, initiatives that deal with uh, social justice and injustice and black lives mattering, is it going to end now that these initiatives have been brought to the fore? My guess is no. I hope I'm wrong. Tired of hearing apologies from white politicians for racist policies, the collective came together every Friday for two hours to challenge elected officials to implement the proposals they've been ignoring for years. On Tuesday, the group unveiled their plan as well as timelines and who is leading that particular work. Let this be history in the making, Mr. Holland said. And if we do it right, our children will look back and say this is the year that black lives started to matter here in Oregon. Again, we don't know the details of those initiatives, only that the um, governor, some city uh, or rather county uh, commissions and others have made the commitment to move forward. Now, I have to admit, as an African-American who strongly believes that black lives matter, I'm concerned about the kind of initiatives that might have been proposed. Now, they may be perfectly sound, and I hope that's the case, uh, but given the embrace of the governor, I do have my questions. We'll continue to follow that story and hopefully the details uh, in the um, in the days ahead.
Meanwhile, if Oregon sees a statewide positive coronavirus testing rate above 5% for three consecutive weeks, none of the state's public school students will be allowed to re-enter schools for in-person instruction. That means the uh, two days on, two days off, staggering, sitting outside, all of the potential um, configurations will not be permitted. The governor spoke earlier today. We'll tell you more about that in our final segment of today's program. Again, Oregon students may not return to classrooms if the state sees a surge in coronavirus infections, according to Kate Brown. One question that I raise is how these numbers are calculated. In the numbers that were released today, there was one 26-year-old, for example, who was listed as having died of coronavirus. But it was written in such a way that called into question whether or not the individual actually died of coronavirus, if it was a contributing factor. And I think these are questions that are being raised uh, with regard to how the numbers are calculated and who is considered having died from coronavirus as opposed to dying and uh, having had coronavirus. And anyway, um, we'll talk more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the governor spoke earlier today saying that Oregon students may not return to classrooms if the state sees a surge in coronavirus infections. Well, if that um, testing rate goes above 5% for three consecutive weeks, none of the state's public school students will be allowed to re-enter classrooms for in-person instruction, so says Governor Kate Brown. The state hasn't met that benchmark in July, but did so in April and May, according to state officials. The statewide positive testing rate was 5% in the most recent weeks, but 6% in each of the previous two weeks. We're not where we need to be to safely reopen schools, the state epidemiologist Dean Seidlinger says. Our current case rates are higher than they need to be and higher than they were in other countries, or rather, yeah, countries that began to reopen schools. Well, Governor Brown and Oregon health officials also announced metrics for countywide reopenings, including scenarios under which children from kindergarten to third grade would receive in-person instruction while older students studied from home. Closing schools in the spring was one of the most difficult decisions I've made in the pandemic, she says. As COVID-19 continues to impact both our urban and rural communities, it's been clear that this school year will not look like any other school year. Well, the metrics must be met three weeks in a row and include the following. If the state sees a test positivity rate of 5% or less over seven days, Students may return to school buildings dependent on district blueprints. If the state sees 20 or more cases per 100,000 residents over seven days, districts should prepare for the possibility they'll need to adopt full-time distance learning plans. A test positivity rate of 7.5% would also necessitate these steps. Now, this is what the governor announced earlier today in her press briefing. If the county sees 10 or fewer cases per 100,000 residents over seven days, its districts may allow children into school buildings. Test positivity should uh, be 5% or less over that same time period. Well, the most recent statistics available for tests given on July the 12th through July the 18th show that 15 Oregon counties currently have positive testing results above the 5% threshold. They include Multnomah, Washington, Marion, and Deschutes counties, as well as less populous counties such as Malheur and Sherman. Well, in addition, based on cases reported from the 15th uh, to the 22nd of July, Eight counties have more than 10 cases per 100,000, including Morrow with 55 per 100,000 people, Umatilla with 60, and Mar- uh, Marion 
with 11. And Oregon doesn't have any counties that currently fall in the window that would allow younger students to attend classes in person, although Hood River and Lake uh, counties are close with positive testing of uh, 6% on the 12th of July through the 18th. Well, the governor's announcement came the day after hundreds of educators flocked to the Capitol demanding she keep schools closed unless the state uh, record records rather no new coronavirus cases for 14 consecutive days. All but one of Oregon's 36 counties, Wheeler County, has had a new coronavirus case identified in the past two weeks. Fewer than 200 students in Wheeler County attend brick-and-mortar schools. Well, earlier in the day, the second largest teachers union in the country said it would support any of its members should they choose to strike against unsafe working conditions set by their districts. The American Federation of Teachers, which represents some community college instructors and education workers in Oregon, but not public school teachers, said strikes should only be used as a last resort. Now, so far in the state of Oregon, private schools are permitted if they can follow the guidelines outlined by the governor will be permitted to open with in-person learning. But that certainly does not extend to public schools. Now, I would hope that along with this prohibition of in-class learning, the state of Oregon would make it easy for parents who might choose to send their children to other uh, learning uh, experiences that would permit them to thrive during this season rather than stagnate, as has sadly been the case for so many students who have not had in-person learning for months. Well, you've been listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. I want to thank you for making the show a part of your day. And do please keep our city, the city of Portland, some of you live in other areas, but keep the city of Portland in your prayers. There's a lot of information swirling around about what's happening, who's right, who's wrong, who's responsible uh, for what's happening. But we need to pray for peace. Uh, Whatever moves need to be made in that direction, let's pray that there are leaders among those who are protesting, perhaps, or leaders who are in positions of authority who will make decisions to ultimately put an end to the violence that we're seeing. And one might hope that the uh, announcement made earlier today might contribute to the uh, lessening of hostilities. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.